Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Thinking of adding a drip irrigation system to your garden? That's a good idea. Drip systems conserve water and more effectively irrigate the root systems of your plants. But you have choices. Should the water be delivered via drippers or micro sprayers? Each has its advantages, each has its drawbacks. Our favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, weighs the pros and cons involved with a drip irrigation system. Thinking of buying a rototiller for your garden? Our resident soils expert, Steve Zion, has a better way to improve your soil with that $1,000 that you might spend. But don't worry, it too is a fun, loud garden implement. And the plant of the week is a tree that's putting on a show throughout the United States in early spring. The Red Bud. Warren Roberts of the UC Davis Arboretum tells us all about it. It's all on episode 89 of the Garden Basics podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Recently, Tim left a message at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, and it was a very good question having to do with watering your plants. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor, to help us tackle this uh, very thoughtful question from Tim, who says, when choosing drip emitters for perennials or non-native plants, is there a way to tell if certain perennials should use a drip emitter or a spray emitter on a drip irrigation system. Could a spray emitter cause diseases on certain plants if they hit the leaves? And I would add to that, uh, well, where would you use a spray emitter then if indeed they do cause problems on plants? And thinking about that, Debbie, I'm thinking, well, if I'm growing a ground cover and that spray is always going to be over the top of the plants, that might not be a bad way to go, especially if it's some sort of uh, ground cover that tends to root as it travels. Yes, that would be a, a good place to use spray. I'm a I'm a drip fan. I like to use drip for almost everything. But the place that I do have spray is in my lawn, which is a ground cover, right? Uh, mine happens to be a no mow lawn, but when you've got lots and lots of roots and grass produces a huge quantity of roots and a, a rooting ground cover, one that spreads, uh, would be ben benefit from spray because the spray will not get tied up in the roots of that plant. And as the plant, if it's a spreader, spreads, it needs water where it goes. And so the spray is is able to send the water in those directions. The downside with a spray is that if you're growing plants that get taller than eight inches or so, that spray will get blocked eventually. Correct. Right. Spray can be difficult that way. Is uh, you can It's great. The other place I use a little bit of it, I use a micro spray, is in the vegetable garden. Uh, because I'm starting from seed and I don't want to rely on the location of the drip emitter 
to plant the seed because that means I'm planting the seed in exactly the same location every year. And that will change the, the soil texture there because I'll have lots of roots that are, are there. Uh, it makes more work. It would mean I'd have to dig up the garden and work more in it. So I like to use a spray that will go everywhere. Also, I tend to have better drained soil in my raised bed in the vegetable garden and spray uh, spreads the water all over the surface, whereas drip emitters put water right where they drip. And that makes sort of a carrot shaped wetting pattern. And if that root from the plant is not in that carrot shape in the well-drained soil, it will not grow. It will not get water. So spray is good for really well-drained soil. If you have sandy soil, you probably want to use spray in many places. Uh, or if you're using uh, soilless media in a container or have modified your raised bed with soilless media, then those are places where I would use spray. Yeah, generally, if you have raised beds, that soil does drain quickly, but narrowly in, in those narrow cylinders you're talking about. They've, they've tackled that problem at uh, the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center run by the Sacramento County Master Gardeners on their raised beds. They're 15, 20 feet long and about four feet wide. They have many drip irrigation lines with inline emitters built into them running through that bed. They might have, on a four-foot-wide bed, they might have five lines running parallel the length of the bed. But they also have many sprayers on the corners and uh, on the edge in the middle that mm -hmm. will cover that area with water when they do plant seed which makes perfect sense. And so you've got the the benefits of both systems. Uh, in a, are they and, on separate valves? And yes, and they are on separate valves. That is an excellent idea. I have only the micro sprayers uh, down the sides and in the corners and in the middle on my raised bed, which is also four feet wide and, and use that all the time in my vegetable garden. Mine is not as big and I have had success with that. One of the downsides of using micro sprayers is it's attractive to a lot of gnawing critters like squirrels and rats who, who want the moisture. And if you have quarter inch tubing connected to those sprayers, uh, they tend to put holes in that quarter inch tubing. And also those sprayers tend to get knocked around. They tend to clog a bit. So you need more supervision of sprayers to make sure that they are working. Yes. The drip irrigation emitters have come a long way in in their engineering in that they are generally pressure regulated. So they're very good for changes in elevation, slope. If you take them up a hill, you'll get just as much water out of the one at the top of the hill as you will at the bottom of the hill. And they are self-cleaning in many cases. Mm. Uh, the water goes through so fast that the gunk gets dropped out. But you do need a filter at the beginning of the system. You do need to observe the length of your run and how many emitters you have, how much water you can get out of each emitter, add that up. You don't need to, you don't want to exceed certain limits and you can only use certain lengths. Like in, in the quarter inch line, you can, with inline emitters, you only want to use uh, 10 feet or so. But yes, I have experienced the problem with the, uh, I assume it's rats because I know I have, there are rats in my neighborhood with holes in, in my, uh, emitter line. So the thing to do when you turn on the, the emitter system, and this is true with spray or drip lines, is go out and look at yes. it. <laughs> turn it on at a time. We tip, typically run them at a time when we're maybe asleep or not home. The advice is to apply the water very early in the morning when there's less evaporation. 
So you lose less water to the environment. And before people get up and start using, taking showers or whatever, so the pressure is is high enough, although drip lines do need a lower pressure. But turn it on when you're there, walk around and look for holes, look for, for fountains, look for problems and fix those minimum once a year. Yeah. And not only look, but also listen, because if you have a leak in a drip irrigation system in a half inch tube, you may be hearing the of of water Mm -hmm. and you may see very, very wet spots in some locations. And if you uh, maybe uh, pull back the mulch, if you have your line buried under mulch, maybe you might discover Old Faithful. Right. Right. Even in uh, I was working in my greenhouse the other day uh, with the irrigation system, rearranging it for the plants that are in there currently. And a line that I thought was solid was spraying across the greenhouse. And I don't know, the door is shut. I don't know how it got a hole in it, but it got a hole in it. And so I, yes, I had to fix that. Absolutely. Turn it on when you're there, listen, look, and and fix the problems. By the way, when we talk about inline emitter systems, we're not talking about the little tabs that you uh, poke in an emitter into a half-inch tubing. These inline emitter systems with the built-in emitters are actually built into the half-inch tubing. You can't see them. There's little slits in the half-inch tubing that allow the water to come out in these uh, pressure-regulated turbulent flow systems that are excellent, and they're very easy care. They are the most reliable uh, drip system that you can install. Yes, I had them at my last house for 17 years, and I never had a problem other than the occasional animal attack. How often uh, did you flush the system? I didn't. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, you being on water. A, a municipal water supply with a, a reasonable pH, so something around neutral, uh, there was very little in the water system to build up. If you are on a well, you probably have certain impurities that you won't find in a municipal water system. Anybody with a well and a drip system knows that you can get a lot of sediment. You can get some calcium buildup, too, around the emitters. And so you have to be uh, very judicious about flushing the system once a month. So when you install that drip irrigation system, make sure you include end caps that make it easy to take off. Run the system for a few minutes to flush out any impurities, especially the sediment, and then uh, reattach the cap. But uh, that's important to do on a well system. It's also an important thing to have those caps on the end if you get freezing in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. You want to drain the system for the winter so that because uh, water gets bigger when it turns into ice and it could cause lots of damage to the system if it if there's water sitting in those pipes. So taking those ends off and letting it all drain out for the winter is an excellent idea as well. So, Tim, the short answer to your question, and of course, we took the scenic route to get to the answer to your question. <laughs> the short answer would be we prefer drip emitters to spray emitters. You just have to position the lines close enough so that all areas of your soil have an overlapping water footprint. Yes. And some of the reasons we prefer maintenance, we mentioned, easier to maintain than a spray system. But water conservation and whether you're in a place like we are where water shortages are a regular thing or not, even if you're in a place where you're getting lots of water, water is a limited supply on earth and wasting it is wrong. And so drip lines provide the water at the root zone and much less is lost to evaporation than it is with a spray system. Uh, You also get 
uh, uniform application because of the pressure regulation. The end of the line produces as much water as the beginning of the line. The top of the hill produces as much water as the bottom of the line. And as he mentioned, as Tim mentioned, the drip system, which is at the ground, does not cause disease on the plants. He mentioned a uh, rose and black spot. Absolutely. If you overhead irrigate many plants, you will get black spot or other fungal diseases on those plants if the water stays there. So time of irrigation, if you are using spray, is very important. Do it in the morning so the plant has time to dry out. But if you can use drip instead, you won't have to face that problem at all. And in this Q&A, let's add a quick tip. The fact that it's not a bad idea to every now and then uh, take your garden hose with a shower uh, setting and go out to your garden and wash off the leaves of your plants. Yes, very true. Do it in the morning. Mm-hmm. So they will dry out nicely in the afternoon and that will remove the dust that has accumulated on them. And this is especially for people like us who live in places where it does not rain in the summertime. Uh, and also there are wildfires in the summer. Lots of gunk builds up on your plants in the summertime. So wash them off and they will be able to get more sun and, and do more photosynthesis and be healthier plants. Yes, unfortunately, here in California, we have come to realize uh, what smoke and ash from wildfires, which could be hundreds of miles away, but find their way to your yard, can do to impede the progress of, of plants and uh, especially wine grapes. Yes. Yes. I think there's going to be a whole new industry in smoky wines. Yes, there is. Yeah. Be looking for a smoky wine near you. Well, <laughs> uh, Tim, I hope that helps. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help on this. You're welcome. Thank you, Fred. We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And SmartPots clicks all those boxes. They're durable. They're reusable. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com slash Fred. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to SmartPots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next SmartPot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, we like to offer up quick tips. Steve Zion is here with 45 years experience in organic horticulture and soil science. What the heck would he know about garden toys? Well, let's find out because maybe you have a spare thousand bucks and you want a good garden toy so you can feel like a real farmer and you're thinking i'm gonna get a rototiller because everybody needs to till their soil i i think steve people would be surprised to learn that there's much better ways to spend that thousand dollars if you want to help out your garden yeah i mean what happens when you till the soil is you destroy the soil structure and soil structure means that your soil has a variety of pore spaces and that's really important, especially in our area, because we have a lot of clay soil and we have poor drainage. And so we have only very, very tiny pore spaces. And everybody thinks you till the soil and it loosens it up and creates a, a wide variety of pore spaces. But the problem is, is after you start irrigating or, or the rain comes, 
the fine clays that you've all loosened up with that tillage starts to leach down through the soil and fills up and plugs up all those large pores. So in actuality, tillage reduces soil structure and reduces the, the large pore spaces so it compact actually compacts your soil in the long run. A lot of people don't realize that for a plant to thrive besides soil and water, it needs air. And rototilling basically destroys those air pockets. Yes, absolutely critical to have as much air in there as as well. That's where the better the soil structure is, you have more uh, drought resistance, the more, more spots for nutrients and soil biology. Everybody, all you know, the roots and the microbes can all move through there. Also, the tilling um, kills a lot of the microscopic organisms, in particular, the two major organisms that you find as far as massive numbers, the two biggest guys in quantity are bacteria and fungi. And bacteria are little one-celled critters, and they don't really get harmed too much by tilling. But the fungi, they're like long strings in your garden, and they get sliced to death with a rototiller. And what's interesting is when you till the soil by killing the, the, the majority of the fungi, you change the ratio in your soil of between bacteria and fungi, increasing the amount of, fungi, of, of bacteria. And what kind of plants prefer living in bacteria-dominated soil? Everybody's garden favorite, they're called weeds. <laughs> so if you want to grow weeds, till your soil. My heavens. I imagine, too, speaking of long, stringy things in the soil, that a rototiller isn't doing worms any good. Exactly. They're, they're slicing and dicing. It's, it's just very, very disruptive to the, to the ecological system of the soil. And uh, it, it really sets your soil back. The USDA, their Healthy Soils webpage, talks about that a lot. And it's mainly for farmers because they're trying to convince farmers to do less tillage, but it also applies in the backyard garden as well. Exactly. Now, I have seen amazing things happen with my soil just by mulching the top of the soil, adding three or four inches of mulch that was free, that uh, arborist drop off of chipped and shredded tree parts. And because they're all different sizes, they break down at different times. But it's amazing the earthworm activity that I've seen increase since applying three to four inches of mulch on the soil and just leaving it there. Yep, that's that's your natural. Those are guys are your natural rototillers, but they're only going to really do an excellent job of, of tilling the soil by by creating air channels all the way to the surface. Is if you have some sort of mulch or compost on the soil surface, if that's there, they will come up every night, feed on that, and then when the sun comes up, they'll go back down. And so they're basically opening up drainage channels and root channels so that the water and the roots can move through your soil. And or the worms are also, if anybody has ever by chance touched the worm, they're really slimy. That slime is food for all the microscopic organisms that help your plants grow. Oh, well, there you go. But I still have this $1,000 burning a hole in my pocket. What can I spend it on to feel like a farmer? A chipper shredder, create something that will create that mulch that you just talked about. All right. Yeah. The chipper shredders uh, vary in price from a few hundred up to uh, several thousand dollars. But uh, if you have trees on your property or your neighbors have trees or shrubs or you're removing shrubs or portions of trees, 
why put it in the trash? Put it through your chipper shredder and then put it on your soil. You don't have to dig it in. Just lay it on top of your soil and voila, magic. Exactly. Yeah, you, you really don't want to, you know, a lot of people, the old school was, you you know, you want to add organic matter to the soil. And we used to all recommend tilling it in, working it in. I used, used to have a rototiller. But we've learned that's very destructive to the soil and you're better off just putting it on top. What's great is the more we're learning, the easier it's getting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It it works like a charm. All right. Steve Zion with 45 years experience in organic horticulture and soil science. There you go, folks. If you're going to spend a thousand bucks on a big garden toy, get yourself a chipper shredder, not a rototiller. You're going to make the worms in your soil and your plants very, very happy. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you're going to find more information about how to get in touch with us. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call. You do it via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash garden basics. It's easy. Give it a try. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and review section. You can text us questions and pictures or leave us your question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. And please tell us where you're from, because that'll help us greatly accurately answer your garden questions. Because after all, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets. That includes Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, you'll find a link to the farmerfred.com website. And thanks for listening. Warren Roberts is with us with the plant of the week, and he's going to get serious about Cersus. That would be the red bud. And you can find red buds throughout the country. There are eastern red buds, western red buds, Chinese red buds. They are throughout the country. Warren, uh, I think a red bud is just one gorgeous plant. And man, oh man, those rosy to purplish pink blossoms in early spring are fabulous. They certainly are. One of the wonderful places to see red buds in, in abundance is Vintertoa, which is one of the DuPont gardens in, in Delaware, I believe. And the, the the owner of Wintertour was particularly interested in the the beautiful flowers of the redbud, and also the uh, creamy yellow uh, color of many wildflowers. So when the redbuds are in bloom in Wintertour, that's what you see. Those are the colors. The eastern redbud, as we call it, is a very useful small tree. And of the whole the whole genus, it's one of my favorites because it's so dependable. So it's a beautiful color. The typical color is kind of a, a slightly purplish pink. Why it's called red bud? Well, when the before the flower opens, the buds actually are kind of a maroon red. 
So I, I'm guessing that that's how how it gets its name. There are, I think, about oh, 30 species of redbuds around the world, quite a few. A lot of them in China and in the, the temperate parts of Asia. But there are also redbuds in Mexico, over much of the United States, and, and of course, the Mediterranean. The um, redbud of Europe is... Uh, the Cercis siliquastrum, sometimes called the Judas tree. And oh, happy Easter, by the way. Oh, yes. <laughs> happy Easter. The That tree in Rome is used as a street tree. Hmm. And it's quite amazing because the flowers will come right out of the trunk. It doesn't have to be on a, a young stem at all. And that's kind of true of the, the whole genus. Sometimes you'll have flowers coming out of the, out of the, the main trunk of the plant. Typically, also, they bloom before the leaves come out, so the color is undiluted, and it, it's quite an amazing sight uh, to be uh, see a, a grove of red buds or individual red buds because the color is is typically rather strong and 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 very beautiful. I guess our uh, e our friends in the eastern part of the United States uh, really get to enjoy the, the uh, Circus canadensis, which is a, a, a true tree form of the redwood, the eastern red, but because it's a tree that can get to 35 feet tall, whereas the ones that are uh, seen out here tend to be kind of shrubby. Yes, uh, the uh, redbuds native um, to to California and to Arizona typically are smaller and really uh, almost always shrubby. And sometimes the stem, when it gets, uh, or the trunk, when it gets older, will will die, but the plant won't, and the uh, sprouts continue to come up. So you cut back the dead part and then enjoy the new stems. The effects, the new stems are traditionally used in basketry hmm. in, in uh, California amongst the Native Americans. It was one of the, uh, or is even today, because people still use it, uh, used to make baskets. At a certain time of year, you cut the long uh, stems that come sprouting up from the base, and those can be then peeled and and split, and then used for making baskets. To for the color uh, design in the baskets, the stems would be gathered uh, during the dormant season when the bark is tight to the stems. The uh, the redbuds that we we have uh, available in in horticulture, the main species is uh, Cercis canadensis with many different select forms and varieties. The western redbud, Cercis occidentalis, there is a white flowered form which is occasionally available, but mainly it's pink. Cercis chinensis is a traditional uh, harbinger of spring in China. And you see it in, in uh, traditional paintings uh, from from China and Japan. Um, there's also one from Afghanistan, Cercis griffithi. We have that at the Arboretum at Davis. And it has uh, gray-green leaves and uh, the same flowering um, seasonality as the others. Hmm. Does it have fall color? Fall color in redbuds is, I have seen in the wild in California, uh, red buds, the, the color up in the fall, uh, red, but occasionally a little bit of pale yellow. But there are forms that have colorful, of other species, which have, have colorful leaves all year round. There are almost, almost too many to mention, really, but uh, there are 
beautiful selections of red buds uh, available in most nurseries. Oh, another thing about that is, like the the western red bud is the pods, but after the flower blooms, the pods are often green, but often they're purple and and uh, uh, show color uh, all in through the summer. The disadvantage is that the pods don't tend to fall from the plants. So in the wintertime, you have what looks like kind of a, a tan look, kind of like a dead shrub because of all these uh, pale brown or tan pods that uh, persist on the plant. But it's certainly worth growing. The, the, the plant is easy to grow, the beautiful seasonality in regards to the spring color, and the leaves are beautiful as well. And there are also different forms to choose from. Well, the bean pods, to any horticulturist, is winter interest. <laughs> the, the red bud, it's a plant that can be planted just about anywhere. And yes, even here in California, you can plant eastern red buds. You don't have to stick to just the western red bud. There are uh, plenty of good eastern red bud varieties that uh, do well here with nice color. And I would think uh, perhaps uh, vice versa as well, that uh, maybe some of those western red buds might do well back east. I think they would. Um, I don't know how they would do with the wet summers, but uh, it might be worth a try. Uh, but there are so many, so many different forms of the eastern red buds, and there's the Texas red bud, there's a Mexican red bud, and so on. Lots of things to choose from. Circus is the genus. So red bud, is, red bud is the common name. Yes. <laughs> and, but you can just call him Bud. Right. The, the Red Bud. Check it out. And check out the UC Davis Arboretum online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. It is a botanical showcase located in Davis, California. Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of that fine establishment. Warren, thank you for telling us about the Red Bud. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Fred. Thanks for listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's available on many podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, and many more. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a comment or a rating. That helps us decide which garden topics you'd like to see addressed. And again, thank you.